Some people call me the space cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. This week, I examine the first of a phase in King's career in which he examines the female perspective, the nail-biting thriller Gerald's Game. He'll follow it up with the interconnected Dolores Claiborne, and will examine the terror of domestic abuse in Insomnia and later in Rose Matter. And well over a decade later, he will write what he feels is his best novel, Lisey's Story. Going back to Insomnia, King makes the threat of domestic abuse so all-consuming, it threatens the entire multiverse. Likewise, here there is an incredible use of symbolism when our main character, Jesse, as a girl is abused, the sun goes out. It's a very simple premise, a woman handcuffed to a bed. But within that simple premise resides a huge storytelling challenge. How do you make it compelling? Think about it. During the course of this novel, Jessie is trapped by herself, with only the voices to keep herself company. It would have been very easy to let this story derail itself, but thankfully King knows exactly how to keep it chugging along smoothly along the track. Before I get any further, I want to read a listener email. Hello. I started listening to your show this week and wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed it. I just wrote an iTunes review too. Thank you. The chronological format and your choice to also review the film adaptations is methodical and just right as far as I'm concerned. Back in the 80s, I was a rabid King fan and made a faithful version of The Lawnmower Man that was one of the earlier Dollar Babies. I was front row center at opening night at the Cary Broadway musical too. With Tommy Knockers, Needful Things, and The Dark Half, I felt that King had jumped the shark and stopped being a constant reader. He was still capable of beautifully crafted stories like The Green Mile, but most of the later novels just didn't connect with me. If I were stranded on an island, I'd much rather have the Bachman books than Desperation or Cell. I think I might just be a curmudgeon. But listening to your podcast is inspiring me to get back into King, at least to revisit the novels and stories that made me a fan. On your review of The Boogeyman, which just to put this in a little bit of context, uh, can be found in the Night Shift episode. Uh, on your review of The Boogeyman, you puzzled over the ending, and I can offer my take, although I haven't actually read the story in 35 years. Since a psychiatrist is someone who gets into your head, the twist suggests that the child killer is metaphorically Billings. He may not have literally killed his children, although it's also intriguing to posit that theory too, but his character his character flaws contribute to their deaths. The boogeyman is the physical manifestation of his own reaction to fear, and as a psychiatrist may explain or hold a mirror up to the patient's psyche, it's perfect that he was the boogeyman all along. Another take along those lines is that Billings turned to the shrink as a dependent turns to someone in authority, which is the position Billings' children were to their father, so the horror comes from being menaced by the very person you turn to care for. We can't know if King considered these metaphors. It probably just felt right. Anyway, these days I've been co-hosting my own podcast, Monster Party, and it's been fun steadily growing an audience, as you know. One of these days we'll do an episode on King. Anyway, thanks for your entertaining and informative show. Look forward to listening more. Best, James. So, James, thank you for writing in. Thank you for the iTunes review. Thank you for the great analysis of The Boogeyman. 
which I kind of dismissed and, and kind of kept, you know, cracked a couple jokes at. Uh, so, I mean, I think that that is a wonderful, wonderful interpretation that did not cross my mind. I'm very, very glad that you shared it with us. Um, everyone, make sure that you check out Monster Party. I think that's important that we, uh, we constant readers support each other. And I'm very, very interested in, in the Lawnmower Man. Just so everyone knows, James uh, and I have emailed a couple times back and forth, and he's going to try and find a way to, uh, to share the Lawnmower Man, which I can then uh, plug on, on, online. So I'm, I'm very, very, uh, very excited about that. All right, guys. So as you know, I love I love listening email. Please feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And like James had done, if you've gone over to to YouTube, I'm sorry, iTunes, uh, feel free to write a review and a subscription because I don't know how everyone is getting their 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 weekly dose of the Stephen King cast. But if you subscribe over on iTunes, I know that it really helps get the the Stephen King cast out there more. So that I would be that would be greatly appreciated. All right, everyone, back to Gerald's game. I'm going to get into the Wikipedia summary. The story begins with Jessie Burlingame and her husband Gerald in the bedroom of their secluded cabin in western Maine, where they have gone for an offbeat romantic day off. Gerald, a successful lawyer with an aggressive personality, has been able to reinvigorate the couple's sex life by handcuffing Jessie to the bed. Jessie has been into the game before, but suddenly balks. As Gerald starts to crawl on top of her, knowing her protests are real but ignoring them anyway, she kicks him in the stomach and in the groin. He falls from the bed to the floor, cracks his head, has a heart attack, and quickly dies. Jesse is alone in the cabin, unable to move off the bed or summon help. The only things that show up are a hungry stray dog named Prince that starts feeding on Gerald's body and a terrifying deformed apparition that may or may not be real whom Jessie first mistakes for the ghost of her long-dead father, but dismisses it later. Jessie begins to think of this bizarre visitor as the Space Cowboy, after a line from a Steve Miller song, The Joker. A combination of panic and thirst eventually causes Jessie to hallucinate. She hears voices in her head, each one ostensibly the voice of a person in her life, primary the good wife, or a goody Berlin game, a somewhat puritanical version of Jessie, Ruth Neary, an old college friend, and Nora Callahan, her ex-psychiatrist, both of whom Jessie hasn't spoken to in years. These voices represent different parts of her personality, which help her extract a painful childhood memory she has kept suppressed for many years. She was sexually abused by her father at age 10 during a solar eclipse that occurred in her main hometown. She also begins to realize how unhappy her marriage had been and that she sacrificed a potentially happy life for the security of Gerald's paycheck by being a trophy wife without children. This internal dialogue is mixed with description of Jessie's more and more desperate attempts to get out of the handcuffs, first by trying to break the headboard she was cuffed to, then by trying to slip off the bed and pushing the bed to the bureau where the keys were placed. Finally, she does escape after one of the voices in her head tells her that if she stays another night, the space cowboy, who she dreamed of as a manifestation of death, will more than likely take a part of her to add to its trophy fishing creel filled with jewelry and human bones, killing her in the process. 
Jessie escapes the handcuffs by slicing her wrist open all the way around on broken glass and giving herself a degloving injury in order to lubricate her skin enough for the cuffs, which were made for men and not women, and thus almost loose enough for her to slip out normally to slide her right hand out. She is then able to move behind the bed, push it over to the bureau, and use one of the keys to unlock her left handcuff. However, she has lost a lot of blood and passes out shortly after. When she awakens, it is now nighttime, and the space cowboy has made his way back into the house. Jessie confronts him and throws her wedding ring at his box of jewelry and bones, thinking that this is what he wanted all along, then turns and runs out of the house. She is able to make it into her car and finally escapes the house, but is terrified to discover the space cowboy sitting in the back seat of her car. Jessie crashes out of fear and is knocked unconscious, and it is later revealed that she only imagined the space, the space cowboy in the back seat. The story then cuts to months later, with Jessie recuperating from the incident and being looked after by a nurse. An ambitious associate attorney at Gerald's law firm assists her in covering up the real incident to protect her and the law firm from scandal, as well as assisting her in recuperation. At the end, we get to read the letter that Jessie writes to Ruth Neary, detailing what happened after the incident and her recuperation process, which is slow but very meaningful. One of the, passage, sorry, one of the passages in the letter revolves around a serial necrophile and murderer named Raymond Andrew Jubert making his way through Maine. It turns out that he was the space cowboy confirmed when Jesse confronted him in a court hearing and Jubert mimicked Jesse's arm positions while she was in the handcuffs. He also repeated her frightened exclamations that Jubert was not anyone and that he was only made of moonlight. Jesse also mentions what became of Prince who gnawed on Gerald. Prince was shot and killed by the police. Initially, his owner had abandoned him in Maine and driven back to Massachusetts simply because he didn't want to pay for the dog's license. That's a funny sentence to end the uh, Wikipedia summary on, um, as if that's the most important thing to close on. <coughs> anyway, I will get now into the analysis. Uh, so, everything that you are going to need to know is right on the first page. Uh, Jessie is our main character, and she is getting handcuffed to a bed. She's in a passionless marriage to Gerald. It's October. The back door of the cabin is open, and she's not into the bondage game that she has agreed to. With each page, King continues to pack as much information into the story. We get a sense of the room that Jessie will be trapped in. We are filled with a deep unease to match her own. We immediately do not like Gerald, and we learn that Jessie hears voices in her head. So far, two of them, the good wife Burlingame, who constantly suggests that Jessie compromise herself, and a new voice, Stronger, the voice of Ruth, her college roommate, a fighter trying to get her to reclaim herself. Typically, just so you know, this is going to be a short review because during these reviews, I stop at pertinent points to type my thoughts. But with this book, I'm having a difficult time doing that. Not because there aren't any pertinent points to discuss, but because there's too many of them. The opening scene is relentless, with Jesse naked in more ways than one, chained to a bed, physically vulnerable, but also when her request for freedom is denied, she lets it all out on Gerald. With King's description of his idiotic grin and bullied childhood, the Gerald we meet is a damaged man, and this is the worst man that Jesse could be married to in this moment. 
When he won't release her, we immediately worry about rape. But he wouldn't do that, right? He's selfish and inconsiderate, but he's not a rapist, right? Wrong. Our worst fear is confirmed as Jesse's anger at being held captive is met with only with the only power he has over her, sexual power. The unfolding scene is terrifying as it's revealed that he has convinced himself that her verbal attack on him is only a part of the game and forces himself upon her. King captures the horror and fear of this situation as well as the humiliation that would come from it and from later when she imagines her victimization being dismissed by the law who would believe that it was just a game between a married couple that had gone too far. And it does go too far, but thankfully for Jesse, she isn't raped. Having had enough, she lashes out and kicks him, and the following scene is unsettling in its dreaminess. It's like David Lynch has taken control of the narrative for a moment. The picture is vivid of Jesse chained to a bed and above her Gerald screaming with no sound escaping. After Gerald dies, King does wonders at placing us firmly in Jesse's predicament. He'd already established the loneliness of the late October season, so we know that Jessie is all by herself. That fear creeps along the edges of the bedroom, but first she must deal with the very immediate fact that her husband is dead, and King carefully details the sensation her body goes through after having been handcuffed for a while. The chainsaw, which had been snarling and ripping away for quite some time, suddenly felt silent. Dog, loon, and even the wind had also fallen silent, at least temporarily, and the quiet felt as thick and palpable as ten years of undisturbed dust in an empty house. She could hear no car or truck engine, not even a distant one. And now the voice which spoke belonged to no one but herself. Oh my god, it said. Oh my god, I am all alone out here. I am all alone. Less than a hundred pages into the text, things are not looking good for Jessie. Trapped, body aching, she is now thirsty and has to go to the bathroom. These do not sound like life or death situations, but they're seismic for the story that King is telling. Jessie begins yearning in thirst and stares longingly at the glass of water by the bed, the glass of water she'll be unable to reach. It's one thing to tell us that she's thirsty, it's another thing to place us in her shoes by rubbing it in our faces. It makes the thirst come alive for us, which is what needs to happen if we're going to stick with this book until the end. So much of the tension has come from Jessie observing her surroundings. She attempts to pull her wrists out of the cuffs but gives up. She attempts to take out the boards holding the handcuffs in place but she can't. Again, these scenes are thrilling and personal because King has managed to place you on that bed in those handcuffs. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, young or old, every time you open this book, you are Jessie Burlingame, and her plight is your plight. And that plight increases when the dog, one of the touch tones that also includes the chainsaw and the loon, barks right outside the house. It's been creeping, constant threat, growing closer and closer, and now, less than 100 pages in, is finally here. And King changes the perspective for just a few pages, a reprieve from the bedroom, and places us in the mindset of the dog, once named Prince, who zeroes in on the smell of blood from the master, Gerald. King even provides the backstory to the dog, who'd been abandoned by his owner. 
The description here isn't necessary, but shows that Jesse in some ways shares some similarities with this dog. They are both, after all, victims of circumstances beyond their control. Things go from worse to worser when the dog begins to eat Gerald. And after the dog takes its meal, a piece of his tricep, outside, King switches the tension to within Jesse. Just because she's in a physical predicament doesn't mean that the physical threats are the only threats she'll encounter. Here, left alone and trapped, her mind begins to pry open the lids of boxes whose memories she boarded up years ago. Since the very beginning of the novel, King has been teasing us with fragments of the sun going out and dread surrounding Dark Score Lake. Now, King reveals that Jesse had been seeing a therapist, broke it off when things were getting too personal, just as she broke it off from Ruth, the roommate whose voice is the one keeping her going strong. Now we have two mysteries at play. One, how will Jesse get off of the bed? Two, what happened to Jesse at Dark Score Lake as a child? Meanwhile, Jesse is determined to get that glass of water and King provides an agonizing 20 pages in which Jesse struggles to get the water, which she does only to find that she can't drink it because the glass won't reach her lips. While Jesse dreams of the past, the dog, Prince, feels the urge to flee the house, sensing danger approaching which is such, and just the thought of that gave me goosebumps. That's so frightening. This dog who has been presented as the biggest danger to Jesse so far, and not necessarily to, to Jesse because the dog is not going to do anything to Jesse, but just the horror of Jesse knowing that this dog, this rabid animal, is eating her husband. I mean, that's horrifying. She has zero control of the situation. She is so far removed from civilization. This is the wilderness there, and she is trapped in it, and there's nothing that she can do. All of a sudden, this thing that has represented the wilderness is all of a sudden afraid of something. That's a terrifying prospect. And though this novel is a suspenseful thriller, it doesn't mean that King doesn't want to dabble in what made him a horror icon. He is great at scaring us, and he's going to do it for us. So he gave us a nightmare in this book, the Stephen King-ism of, you know, just this very, very scary nightmares. But more importantly, he follows it up with something much, much, much worse. On the paperback editions, you can read it um, on page 168 to 169. It's terrifying, guys. Terrifying. Her thoughts broke off with the clean snap of a knot exploding in hot fire. Her eyes, which had been wandering aimlessly across the darkened room, locked on the far corner where the wind-driven shadows of the pines dance wildly in the nacreous light falling through the skylight. There was a man standing there. Terror greater than any she had ever known crept over her. Her bladder which had in fact relieved only the worst of its discomfort, now voided itself in a painless gush of heat. Jessie hadn't the slightest idea of that or anything else. Her terror had blown her mind temporarily clean from wall to wall and ceiling to floor. No sound escaped her, not even the smallest squeak. She was as incapable of sound as she was of thought. The muscles of her neck, shoulders, and arms turned to something that felt like warm water, and she slid down the headboard until she hung from the handcuffs in a kind of slack swoon. 
but she didn't black out, didn't even come close to it, but that mental emptiness and the total physical incapacity which accompanied it were worse than a blackout. When thought did attempt to return, it was at first blocked by a dark, featureless wall of fear. A man, a man in the corner. She could see his dark eyes gazing at her with fixed, idiotic attention. She could see the waxy whiteness of his narrow cheeks and high forehead, although the intruder's actual features were blurred by the diorama of shadows which were sent flying across them. She could see the slumped shoulders and dangling ape-like arms which were ended in long hands. She sensed feet somewhere in that black triangle of shadow thrown by the bureau, but that was all. And it goes on. And the scene that unfolds is one of the most frightening things that King has ever written. From the description of the shadows playing over the still form of this boogeyman who's... just I mean, just the fact that his hands are dangling by its knees... To the fact that at one point she's convinced that has brought the chainsaw that she's heard earlier. To the reveal that it is not her imagination. It is a visitor who holds not a chainsaw, but a suitcase full of bones and jewels. The scene seems to go on forever. And the stillness of the stranger makes the horror even worse. Is he a person or is he a phantom? A devil? A monster in the woods? If he's really there, why is he just standing there? What type of person sneaks in to watch a woman sleep and not react to her screams? The question that spring up from this man's existence makes him so much worse. We then get the fully detailed scene from Dark Score Lake in 1963, and it's one of those things where... Ah, I mean, would it be wonder? I mean, would it, would it be better if it was just left to interpretation? Do we really need as much detail as we get? And guys, we get all the details. I mean, it's not as if the scene reveals the answer to a mystery. By this point, we know that she's been molested. Do we really know the details? And I get it that, yes, on one hand, we do for Jesse to have her breakthrough. We are in Jesse's perspective, so she needs to accept this. So, so do we. So I get that. But on the other hand, it really makes for a deeply uncomfortable read. Though explicit, I will say it's better handled here than in The Library Policeman. The next portion of the novel is an extended look at Jesse attempting to get out of the cuffs, trying to use face lotion, but failing before ultimately realizing that her own blood will act as a natural lubricant. After a while, and after mutilating her hand, she manages to get free. She's operating on a time crunch now. She knows that she'll die if she stays, yes, but not just from natural causes, but from the man who had visited her during the night, the one who has now left a ring for her on the floor. Triumph comes when she frees herself from the cuff, and when all of her insecurities, guilt, and emotional shackles have fallen away. On the bottom of page 330. Her foot thumped against something. She looked down and she saw she had kicked Gerald's plump right shoulder. Blood pattered down on his chest and face. A drop fell in one staring blue eye. She felt no pity for him. She felt no hate for him. She felt no love for him. She felt a kind of horror and disgust for herself that all the feelings with which she had occupied herself over the years, the so-called civilized feelings that were the meat of every soap opera talk show and radio phone-in program, should prove so shallow compared with the survival instinct, 
which had turned out in this case to be as overbearing and brutally insistent as a bulldozer blade. But that was the case, and she had an idea if Arsenio or Oprah ever found themselves in this situation, they would do most of the things she had done. Get in my way, Gerald, she said, and kicked him, denying the enormous satisfaction it gave her even as it welled up inside. Gerald refused to move. It was as if the chemical changes which were part of his decay had bonded him to the floor. F it then, Jesse said. She began to push the bed again. She managed to step over Gerald with her right foot, but her left came down squarely on his belly. The pressure created a ghastly buzzing sound in his throat and forced a brief but filthy breath of gas from his gaping mouth. Excuse yourself, Gerald, she muttered, and then left him behind without another look. It was the bureau she was looking at now, the bureau with the keys resting on top of it. So I just love the absolute dismissal here of Gerald who had put her through this. If it wasn't for this man, she wouldn't go through this awful, awful experience. So I have no problem with her completely dismissing his death and literally walking over his corpse. But... Just because she might have gotten out of one cuff does not mean that she's totally free yet, as she has to get the keys. Between her mangled free hand and her growing weariness, the key slips from her hand. She needs to be able to get the next key through the lock, or else it's over for Jesse Burlingame. The problem with this book that I have to say now is that it doesn't end. When Jesse gets free, she's still not out of danger because... She isn't able to get out of the house before the boogeyman comes back on page 360 and 361. Uh, she was helpless not to look. It was as if a strong, invisible hand were turning her head while the wind gusted and the back door banged on the shutter clapped and the dog once more sent its desolate, bone-chilling howl spiraling into the black October sky. Her head turned until she was looking into her dead husband's study, and yes, sure enough, there it was. A tall figure standing beside Gerald Eames's chair and in front of the sliding glass door. Its narrow white face hung in the darkness like a stretched skull. The dark squarish shadow of its souvenir case squatted between its feet. Somewhere in that other world, hot urine was running down her legs. She had wet her pants for a second record-breaking day. The wind gusted in that other world, making the house shiver on its bones. The blue spruce knocked its branch against the west wall again. Gerald's study was a lagoon of dancing shadows and was once more very difficult to tell what she was seeing, or if in fact she was seeing anything at all. The dog raised its keen, horrified cry again, and Jessie thought, Oh, you're seeing it all right. Maybe not as well as the dog out there is smelling it, but you are seeing it. As if to remove any lingering doubts she might have had on this score, her visitor poked its head forward in a kind of parody of inquisitiveness, giving Jessie a clear but mercifully brief look at it. The face was that of an alien being that has tried to mimic human features without much success. It was too narrow for one thing, narrower than any face Jessie had ever seen in her life. The nose seemed to have no more thickness than a butter knife. The high forehead bulged like a grotesque garden bulb. The thing's eyes were simple black circles below the thin, upside-down Vs of its brows. Its pudgy, liver-colored lips seemed to be simultaneously pouting and melting. No, not melting, she thought, with the bright, narrow lucidity that sometimes lives, like the glowing filament in a light bulb with a sphere of complete terror, not melting, smiling, it's trying to smile at me. 
Then it bent over to grasp its case, and its narrow, incoherent face was mercifully lost from view again. Jesse staggered back a step, tried to scream again, and could only produce another loose, gassy whisper. The wind moaning around the eaves was louder. And it goes on. So Jesse just can't get out. She's unhandcuffed, but she just can't get out of this situation. It's horrifying. So the important thing here is, is that in this particular scene, she's able to get out of the house because she takes her engagement ring and her wedding ring and she throws it in the visitor's little suitcase full of rings and bones. So to her, the space cowboy has represented death. It's represented a lot of things. It represented her father, okay, who in turn was a symbolic death of her child and the happiness for her rest of her life. Uh, but also physical death for her as she was afraid that it was going to come for her and take her away. So throwing the rings uh, into the suitcase, it's that final nail in the coffin for her marriage uh, and, and the life that she had known. And what is a ring in this case, but another cuff, right? So she had two cuffs on either hand she had two rings she's extricated herself from both of those cuffs now she is extricating herself from the smaller cuffs that she had held on her left finger um, for so long she successfully escapes but her story isn't over it's important to give us the fallout from her ordeal from all of her ordeals she might have freed herself from the house but she has to deal with the death of her husband the reality of what had happened to Gerald, the incident with the dog, the space cowboy, everything that happened at Dark Scora Lake. She ultimately confronts the space cowboy in court, thereby confirming that the space cowboy was, in fact, uh, a living, breathing creature. I won't necessarily call him a human because he is still a monster. And then, you know, the, the novel winds up ending with, um, with Jesse writing a letter to Ruth and rekindling, hopefully rekindling that friendship. And then it ends. And that is Gerald's Game. So I'm sorry, guys. This was not the longest review. And I know that there's symbolism there. There's a lot of symbolism. You know, the fact that she's physically imprisoned to match her, her just spiritual imprisonment that had began when she was molested by her father. Like I had said earlier, the molestation itself is symbolized by the fact that the sun itself goes out, which is a such a great image to match the horrors that that are occurring so i mean there's a lot of talent there certainly but at the end of the day i don't really have much to talk about because so much of it is just a a woman going through this horrific ordeal and aside from what i have said i don't really know how to go any deeper into that and i have a feeling that as i read dolores claiborne as i read rose matter as i read insomnia as i get to the other novels in which king is exploring similar themes and similar perspectives i'll be touching upon gerald's game again and again and again that is my that's my prediction and shame on me i probably should have reread dolores claiborne before recording this episode because as i record this episode when i'm done with it i'm going to pick up dolores claiborne i'm going to start reading dolores claiborne but because those two novels are interconnected through the solar eclipse and i'll get to this in, in easter eggs in a little bit because they are interconnected through a plot point and just by subject matter 
it kind of doesn't feel right to review one without having the full context of the other. So shame on me. I'm sure I will have more to say about Gerald's game in the review of Dolores Claiborne, so, which will be released, if everything goes well, the same day as the release of, of this review as well. But would I recommend this? Of course I would recommend this. I, I think that that's the big question when it comes down to. I'll be honest, when I, last year, when I sat down and I really thought long and hard about doing the Stephen King cast, I thought about what it would entail and, and what could I say. And I know that I, I would definitely be able to say a lot about it. I would be able to say a lot about The Stand. I was really looking forward to getting back into the Dark Tower series. But I was very, not worried, I had hesitations about getting back because I knew that Gerald's game is an important one. And I just, like I like I don't, like I've said before, I, I never quite feel comfortable talking about the whole racial component to Stephen King's writing. Similarly, I, I don't really know how to talk about the, the, the perspective here that he takes and how deeply personal he goes into Jesse. Having not been a woman at any point in my life, I'm never quite sure if his depictions of Jesse's thoughts, which are so naked and so personal, if they're accurate or not. Uh, so, I mean, I know that I've read reviews and I've talked to people who have stated that they feel as though it's published under the, the name Stephen King, but Tabitha really wrote it. I don't know. Having never read anything by Tabitha, I can't say. I am certainly believe that she probably gave him pointers uh, and helped him along the, the way. Which isn't to say that Stephen King doesn't have the ability to write a strong, well-rounded female character. He certainly can. He has definitely come a long way from, uh, from Susan Norton from Salem's Lot. It's just that I... I had high expectations for myself when it came to this particular book and the books that are coming up with Dolores Claiborne and like I had said, and Rose Matter and Insomnia and eventually Lisey's story. And I I just kind of psyched myself out a little bit because on two on, on a couple things here, you, you have a, this nail-biting thriller of this woman stuck in a, in a very physical situation that she needs to get out of, but so much of it is also a statement on abuse um, abuse from the hands of those that you trust, the, the abuse at the hands of your father and your husband and just society around you. I mean, everywhere she goes, she's shackled. She's shackled by the horror that was visited her um, by the person that she trusted the most as a child, the horror that is uh, responsible or, or the, the, the fact that the horror that she is found in throughout the duration of this novel is is because of the the man that she had pledged herself to and you know who she trusted to take care of her puts her in the the most physically threatening position of her life you know the fact that she has to lie about it when it's done and over with because people might not either believe her or because they have to to maintain the dignity of Gerald despite what he had done to her the fact that you know, the, she is now haunted 
by post-traumatic stress. I mean, she is someone that just keeps getting imprisoned. She gets out of one box, she gets put into a new box. She escapes that box, she's put into another box, and over and over and over again. And thankfully, by the end, despite having gone through a series of imprisonments um, and shackles and horrors through her entire life, there is a glimmer of hope at the end when she feels that she's finally free at last or is going to take the steps to become free at last. So, well, I, I think that I, I actually just wound up, uh, you know, working myself through what this this novel is. I just had high expectations. I don't know if I reached those expectations, guys. That's what I'm trying to say. But anyway, this is an incredibly well done novel. It the the film rights have been picked up. I don't know how good a film it would make. I I, I just I you would need visual recreations of the voices uh, but I think that that's kind of been done before I mean I, I just got through watching the United States of Terra and I think that a very similar effect was was used so I don't know would, would it make for a, a thrilling movie it could it certainly could I definitely think that the scenes with the uh, with the space cowboy would be terrifying absolutely terrifying if done the right way like I said I had mentioned Lynch before uh, and I think that just the, the character standing still in the corner is a very Lynchian thing. Anyway, I want to get to Stephen Kingisms and Easter eggs at the moment. So Stephen Kingisms, the first of which we have a character trapped in a bedroom, which we saw before in Misery, in which Paul Sheldon was trapped, imprisoned uh, on a bed, much like the way Jesse is imprisoned here. Number two, we have a dog's perspective. We've seen this before in Cujo. We've seen it in The Stand, and here we see it with uh, with the character of Prince in Gerald's Game. And I've talked about this before, abuse. Uh, and this is not the first time that we are seeing abuse in a Stephen King story. We've seen it in It. We have seen it in The Stand. We have seen it in The Library Policeman. And But I think really with Gerald's game, he is going to begin an examination of how women survive abusive experiences. First, we have Jessie, who through the duration of the novel just remains chained to a bed from her husband's selfishness. She's trapped because of sex, a physical situation that mirrors the spiritual trapping that she had found herself in ever since she was a child. Later in Dolores Claiborne, we see another example of molestation of a daughter by her father. In Insomnia, one of our characters is constantly physically assaulted by her husband. Uh, and the same thing happens in, in Rose Matter as well. So this is something that we're going to be seeing for a while. Number four is the nightmare. Uh, Jessie has a nightmare in which everyone in her life is conspiring against her. And now we have our Easter eggs. Our Easter eggs are our uh, just shout-outs to other Stephen King works. And the first of which, clearly, is Dolores Claiborne. Not only does King explore molestation in another book, he ties these two books together with the solar eclipse uh, and the events of Dolores Claiborne are glimpsed here, uh, starting on page 227 and just throughout the rest of the novel. We'll see glimpses of Dolores through here and there as the scenes unfold, and King even incorporates little details like the dust bunnies under the bed uh, that will be one of the details in Dolores Claiborne. Another Easter egg is Chamberlain, Maine. Chamberlain is mentioned, which is the setting for Carrie. The third Easter egg is Castle Rock. 
in the resolution of this story in which Jesse identifies the space cowboy as a criminal by the name of Raymond Andrew Jubert, who has been desecrating crypts and graveyards all over Maine. So at one point, we hear from Norris Ridgwick, the once deputy, now sheriff. And lastly, we have Juniper Hill. This is where Raymond Andrew Jubert had been sent, the same place um, as Henry Bowers from IT. So that's all I've got for now, everyone. Uh, but hopefully this will be released the same day as Dolores Claiborne. I say hopefully because I haven't even started reading Dolores Claiborne at this point, and I would like these two reviews to be released on the same day because the, the, the two novels themselves are so closely linked. So like I had said before, this is such a nail-biting thriller. It's very, very tense. I think that it's maybe 50 to 100 pages too long. I think that it can be shortened just a little bit, but still it's one that I think really... It's, I, I, I tore through it in two days. It took me two days to get through it. And, you know, I, I didn't stop to take as many notes because so much of it is so... He just details the physical imprisonment of Jesse so, so well. And we have tens and, and, and literally hundreds of pages in which the different situations she's trying to enact out are, are fully, fully realized by his vivid descriptions. So... It's a good one, guys. I would strongly recommend it. And if you have not done so, like I said, feel free to head on over to iTunes to write a review and uh, a subscription. And feel free to follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram, all Stephen King cast. And I will see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. Because I'm a picker, I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. Music in the sun I'm a joker I'm a smoker I'm a midnight joker I should